Welcome to Health Now, WebMD's podcast all about health, wellness, and you. I'm your host, Carrie Gann, and today we're talking to Hallie Cornell, who's an editor here at WebMD, and she's recently started blogging about depression. She's going to tell you all about her life with this condition. But before we talk to Hallie, though, I'd like to ask you a favor. Can you subscribe to the show? That way, you'll never miss an episode. And take a second to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. That will help other listeners find out about us, too. Thanks. All right, now let's get started. Hallie, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First off, give us a snapshot of your life, who you are, what you do here at WebMD, and anything else you want us to know about you. Sure. I'm Hallie. I'm an Ohio native, but I'm kind of a wandering soul, and I've kind of moved all over the country most of my life. But most of my adult years were spent in San Francisco, and that's where I was until about three years ago. I was working for an HIV-AIDS education nonprofit there that basically helped doctors and nurses who were treating HIV patients know how to do it most effectively, helping prevent transmission from mothers to babies and things like that. So it was a great city and really rewarding work, but I'm not a millionaire. And so <laughs> I ended up... Would that you were. Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> and that was three years ago, and now I've been at WebMD for about that long as well. I'm a content strategist here, and basically what that means is I... I try to help figure out what kinds of things people need information about and how to best get it in front of them. I recently started writing for the WebMD blog as a longtime mental health advocate. That's really important to me because it's something that I've been dealing with for most of my life, and I really think it's important for people to learn about the conditions and to get rid of some of the stigma that we have surrounding them still. Certainly. I read your first blog, and it was outstanding. Everyone actually was talking about how outstanding it was in the office, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure. Thanks so much. Uh, so people can find it themselves. I highly recommend it to anybody. But speaking of mental health and depression... How old were you when depression first started to affect you, and what were some of the early signs? You know, the first time I kind of knew to call it depression or anxiety or anything like that wasn't until I was diagnosed, which was at around 25 years old. And at that point, it was that I had finally kind of just conceded to the fact that my grayness and lack of motivation and feelings of futility around my life were not just normal. They weren't something that people just went through every day, and they were starting to kind of encroach on the way that I lived my life and my ability to do the things I wanted to do. So at that point, I actually went in and, and got a diagnosis and started treatment. And does it run in your family? And I guess if so, looking back, can you sort of see how it had always affected you even before you started to feel it or really notice it? You know, it doesn't run in my family that I know of, but I'm from a very emotionally reserved family who didn't at that time do a lot of talking about feelings and that sort of thing. And they were very kind of pull yourself up by the bootstrap to you, which I think was just kind of one of the ethics of the time, you know, in the sure. of the 70s. There wasn't really a lot of mental health discussion and information going on in the, in the world at large, from what I remember. And that information didn't seem really available to my parents. And I just think it wasn't that normal to consider that kids might have enough issues to warrant getting screened or getting treated for these kinds of things. But looking back, there's definitely anxiety symptoms, which is often the thing that happens for people younger than depression. By the time I was in my teens, I was having regular panic attacks. I had sleep problems. I had chronic stomach and headaches. And then the depression symptoms kind of came on and were more noticeable in my 20s, in my early 20s, as I was leaving college. Okay. So what exactly, what's your official diagnosis? And, and has it changed over time? 
I have clinical depression and generalized anxiety disorder. I was initially diagnosed with depression. This is a pretty common co-diagnosis. I think estimates say anywhere from 50 to 60% of people who have one have either symptoms of or are diagnosable with the other. Mm -hmm. So after some years of treatment for depression, uh, I, I also discovered that I had diagnosable generalized anxiety disorder. But it took a while, and we now also know that my depression is something called treatment-resistant depression, which is something about a third of people with depression deal with. And what that basically means is that the kind of the medications and the treatment options that might help other people to achieve remission don't necessarily work for me, or they might work for a time and then wear off. So that's frustrating, but it's still deal-withable. It's just kind of a little bit more of a of a slog, I guess, it's right. a little bit more of a journey. But I do want to stress that for the majority of people who have depression and depression symptoms, treatment works. Well, we'll come back to the treatment side of things in a second, but I want to back up and talk about your diagnosis. And it sounds like you lived with symptoms for a long time without really understanding or recognizing what they were. So how long did it take for you to actually get a diagnosis yeah, well, you're right that I lived with the things for a long time, and, and that part, I think, for a lot of people, it still has to get pretty unmanageable or pretty scary to get to the point where you actually go and seek out a diagnosis, and that's something that I hope talking about it in blogs or in podcasts or things like that will help people kind of recognize that it's okay to not get to the point where things are out of control. So I didn't know really how to pursue that at the time. I wasn't really aware that it's something that you can just talk to your primary care doctor about at a regular doctor visit. That's the way a lot of people now are kind of starting with getting an understanding their diagnosis mm -hmm. um, and then often going to a psychiatrist to help get medications established and that sort of thing. But for me, I didn't really know. So what I ended up doing was um, just kind of looking around online and finding that, you know, hey, these symptoms go with doing this thing. So I went in and saw a mental health professional, and that was the point at which I got diagnosed. Um, and as soon as I got diagnosed, we started looking into medication, and also I was put in group therapy for cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which was very helpful at the time. When the doctor said, I think you have depression, I think you have anxiety, what was your response? To it? Were you like, oh, of course, or was it a, more of a surprise? I think it was more of a surprise at that point because it still wasn't something that was broadly talked about as these things, these symptoms go with this and it's okay. At the point that it happened, I was, I was distressed about it, you know, I was surprised, but I was also, I felt like, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I going through this? You know, how do I, how do I deal with this news? But at the same time, there was also that, that little bit of hope that, hey, these things that have been troubling me for so long might be able to be fixed or I might be able to, you know, learn some things about them that would help. It was a mixed bag, but um, it definitely got me into thinking that there is a way to do something about what's going on. Right. That can be a relief for sure. Yeah, definitely. Has depression affected you in different ways at different points in your life? Yes. I mean, I think a lot of people have this conception of depression as just feeling sad um, that does happen for me, but I would say the way my depression usually presents is more in withdrawing from my family and friends and, and the things that I usually enjoy doing in my life. So you can imagine that would have a lot of effect and repercussions on relationships, on you know the activities that you're doing. If you can't be you know consistently involved in some of the things you're doing, then you can't really be realistically involved at all. So. Um, 
for me. It's it's just something that I call the grayness or the flatness. And it's like there's no feeling that there's an intrinsic reward in doing something. So it doesn't feel like you should do it. And for me, I am involved in a lot of creative things. I'm a musician and I'm a writer. And that creativity just kind of goes away. So the feeling of trying to, you know, embark on a process that can already be hard and can already be, you know, a little bit of a... You have to give your game. give your mind and your spirit to it, for sure. Right. <laughs> that, that feels like, why would I bother trying to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. So definitely those things have, in the past, kind of fallen away from me, and I've, I've lost what I feel like are the opportunities to do some of those things. I would say what it's most affected on an overall level is, especially since it started so young for me, is my feeling that I was able to reach for things that were risky or things that were kind of out of my comfort zone, um, because if you have this sense that you're not going to be able to follow through with things or you're not going to be able to achieve what you would normally on a normal day be able to achieve, then you don't really put yourself out there to try. Right. And how do you know when something like that, for instance, how do you know if that's coming from a place of, you know, that where the depression is driving that? Or if it's just, you know, I'm not really motivated to do this or I'm not really interested? Is there a way to describe kind of the difference that you can feel? Definitely. I mean, I would say that's a learned skill for sure. And that's part of what, you know, when we, if we talk about therapy or things like that, I can describe learning some of those skills. But for me, my default now is to question whether it's depression, because I find that on a normal day, I am a motivated person and I am a very, you know, involved person. That's kind of my natural level of being when I'm not in a bad place with my depression. So if there's something happening where I'm questioning that, then I then I automatically now question whether it's off, whether there's, you know, some depression lurking around. And it's tough, you know, I mean, like I said, it's a learned thing, but I also have some good friends who know me really well, who are, you know, good at providing that kind of feedback, um, are at saying, hey, you know, is something going on? You seem to have, you know, kind of disappeared off the face of the earth or, you know, the things that I tend to do when I'm depressed, including stopping those activities or isolating. I think recognizing that that you can you can rely on external people to help you and that you can have like your own kind of list of signs to recognize is really helpful. One of the things that I talk about when you're in a bad depression, and I, I talked about this in the blog, is that depression lies to you. Mm. Um, and it tells you that you've always been this way, you've always felt this way, and you're always going to. And so one of the things I've kind of worked at as a defense mechanism is I don't have a to-do list. I have an I've done list. Oh, and nice. I can go back and look at that and say, hey, I wrote this song a week ago. I was involved in doing this thing I cared about last month. I yesterday just went and, you know, made a really delicious meal. I, I haven't always felt this way. I haven't always acted this way. Something is wrong. So that's a really something I would recommend to other people, too, is just to kind of take note of the things that you do do, even if they're small things, because when you get in those places where your own voice is telling you mm-hmm. you can't do these things, you have evidence against it. You know, you have proof. That's amazing that you can forget those things, and it can seem like that was never a part of who you were, even though it definitely is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the scary things and one of the, especially like I, I mentioned, the fact that it's your own voice, it's your own, you know, brain. It's not someone else telling, telling you, you that it's you yourself. Know. Yeah, that's so true. It's very convincing. It's very easy to believe it. And part of the whole system for me has been building scaffolding so that I know when to counteract that voice. Right. And having people in your life, like you were talking about, who can remind you of those things as well and, and call that out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. 
And what do you mean by scaffolding? So scaffolding is just the term I kind of use for being able to start at a normal baseline. So if you think of scaffolding on a construction site, it's the, the boards and posts that are put up ahead of doing painting or construction to help you get back up to the level that you were every day. So you don't have to rebuild everything to get back up there. You don't have to make a new system every day. You already have something in place to help you start at a better place than you would have. Because one of the, the exhausting things about depression is people who don't have depression can tend to rely on starting at a certain level of motivation, mental clarity, feeling of initiative every day, and people with depression don't necessarily have that luxury, and it's very tiring to have to not only make that climb every day, but to have to recreate and convince yourself and get yourself to believe that you can do it every day. So if you already have some tools in place where you can say, hey, this is my scaffolding, all I need to do is climb up it and then I'll be there, it's still tiring, but it's way less tiring. And some of the things, you know, like the I've done list is one of the things that I use. Um, one of the things that I use is just logistical stuff like having easy meals around, you know, so I don't have to necessarily make a big fuss to have something healthy and nutritious to put in my body. I have the support system to make sure that I have people I can call on if I need a leg up, if I need some help, you know, getting to where I need to be to get started. So just various tools, you know, there's, there's tons of little tips and tricks I use that have really helped. And I think everybody can kind of make their own system that works for them. And really what it is is that you don't have to convince yourself that you're worth doing those things or that those things work every single time because you have them in place and you know they work and you can just rely on it kind of by rote. Right. doesn't take as much energy to, to build up like it would if you were just starting from nothing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to come back to treatment. Sure. Sounds like that was something of a journey for you. Has it evolved and what is your current treatment like now? Okay, so before I talk about this, I want to make sure that I just kind of reiterate that treatment work works differently for every single person. There's no like correlation between what happens with me and what would happen with somebody else or you know, a med that I would take that would cause a certain side effect necessarily causing it for someone else. That's one of the really actually frustrating things about mental health treatment is we don't quite know how a med or a therapy is going to respond for one person versus another. And so I don't you know, want anybody who's listening to feel discouraged and say, oh man, well, that didn't work, so I'm not going to try that. Right. It could absolutely certainly work for anybody else. That's great. But for me, it's been a bit of a journey, and I think the nature of treatment-resistant depression is just that. It's, it's basically you have to keep trying and keep trying different things. And that's hard, I think, for anybody you know, who's experiencing something that they have to keep trying to treat. Like if you would imagine a physical illness that you have, if different medications aren't working, then you're spending time still having to deal with those symptoms and not getting really much relief. So that's that part of it is hard, but it also makes it compelling to try and keep going. And I think another kind of difficult factor for treating my particular depression is that anxiety is in the mix. And so some of the medications or treatments that might be relevant for depression might not be for depression with anxiety. They might kind of stoke those anxiety feelings as a side effect or that kind of thing. So the best combination of things I've found is really carefully monitored medications, and I do that with a psychiatrist. I'm very lucky to have good insurance that covers all of this. Right. A lot of people have trouble because they don't have these resources. Right. And I do therapy. And I actually now, and I've learned this over time, 
have to keep a pretty strict observation of self-care. And for me, that includes some exercise when I can, but it's more uh, regular meditation, trying to eat really well, and then not drinking much alcohol. Alcohol is just a bad coping mechanism that a lot of people with mental health issues kind of fall back on mm -hmm. because it seems like it can feel good at the time, but ultimately exacerbates depression and anxiety. Right. And I've found something that um, less is better. You mentioned talk therapy as part of your treatment plan, working with a therapist. Is that something that you'll be doing for the rest of your life, or is it a short-term solution? I probably will do it for most of my life. I mean, I think that therapy is something that can be valuable for everybody, whether you have depression or anxiety or other mental health issues or not. You know, I think we all have coping mechanisms that maybe worked for us before that no longer work for us, but we can't quite recognize that that's the case and we don't know what to do with them or how to change them anyway. I think we all have, you know, things that have happened in our past or that we're uncertain about, you know, knowing how to do well in our future that we can use some help with. So I think that, you know, thinking about therapy as strictly in the realm of something that people with mental health issues do is, is limiting. And I think that, you know, really people should think about it as something that can be helpful in terms of building skills. Um, a lot of people kind of picture that, you know, lying back on the couch and mm -hmm. the therapist saying, hmm, how does that, that make so? you feel? Right, right. exactly. And I, and I have done that kind of therapy and it was actually really helpful. Um, it made me extremely uncomfortable, which might have been part <laughs> of why it was helpful because when I'm uncomfortable, I talk a lot. Mm. Um, and so a lot of things came up. But, <laughs> but it was really helpful in terms of um, a specific thing, which was helping to kind of deal with some past traumas and to recognize how those things felt in my body and what they made my mind and body do when I thought about them and when I talked about them and how I could start kind of releasing that and thinking about how to accept it as a normal part of my life and, you know, accept those kind of fears as something that I could use in my favor rather than having to react against. Um, but I did finish, I did stop that kind of therapy because I felt it had come to the end of its usefulness for me. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm looking for now is a cognitive behavioral therapist who also uses mindfulness. Um, and I think that that's because my meditation is been something that's been so useful that I want somebody who uses a technique that kind of uses that same kind of understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is really just, it's something, A, that has been studied and proven to be a really good treatment for both depression and anxiety, really effective. A wide variety of mental health conditions, yeah. yeah. And, and with that, you know, you're basically learning to recognize your distorted thought patterns and how you react to them and to then go back and challenge them and say, you know, is this, is this really the case? So for depression, that might be thoughts like, oh, everything is always pointless or I'm a burden to everyone and I just shouldn't talk to people, you know, and challenging those thoughts with evidence. Like, was everything always really pointless? Even that time I helped someone do something in a meaningful way or you know, it, am I always a burden? Did my dad think I was a burden when he texted me to say, great job on the blog? Or, you know, right. it's just kind of looking at, you know, the evidence in your life that counteracts those thoughts and learning to accept that that evidence is probably a better indicator of where things are than what your own mind is telling you. Right. And that's always a good practice. You know, I think that we all have those kind of distorted ways of thinking from time to time, especially in reaction, in, in, things that cause us stress or, you know, things mm -hmm. that might be difficult life situations for us. Mm -hmm. Everybody is their own worst critic Absolutely. oftentimes. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and then another kind of therapy I've done that was actually really helpful in a certain way was called acceptance and commitment therapy, mm. ACT. And that was really helpful for my anxiety. So the, the interesting idea in the background with ACT is that um, it may be ineffectual or maybe even worse to try to confront and change some of the things that you think and feel. The struggle of actually trying to confront them and, and then repress them if you need to is, is more suffering than just trying to understand how to accept and live with those thoughts and feelings. Um, so, and I mean, I think probably again, everybody's familiar with this frustration when you can't seem to fix something about yourself that you really want to fix. And it could be anything from, you know, these mental health struggles to why can't I just get the motivation to exercise or why can't I just convince myself to go to sleep at night or any of those things. And, you know, you're struggling so much with that. Why can't I fix it? How do I fix it? What am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? that it exhausts you and you're using all that energy that you could be using to actually address the problem mm. by thinking about it and, and, you know, struggling through those feelings. Mm -hmm. And so ACT with my anxiety really just helped me accept that I'm going to have feelings of nervousness and fear. I'm going to have thoughts about how I can't do things because of those. And I don't necessarily have to fix those things to be able to do the thing, you know, I can just accept that those things are part of my natural thinking and feeling process and do the thing anyway. That's coming really handy with, you can imagine somebody with pretty extreme anxiety and being a performer on a stage and how those might go together. You right. Know, if, if I had to fix myself every time before I got on that stage, I would never be getting up there. Right. And I'd be forgoing the, the joy and, you know, fun that I have in doing that because I would be still sitting there trying to fix that thought process. Wow. So, yeah. So I think that there's, you know, the, really the point is there's different kinds of therapy that can be useful for all different kinds of things. Finding the type that works for you, finding the person that works for you is really important. But, you know, again, even like I talked about with treatment resistant depression and medications, don't give up. You know, if something is not working, there is another option out there. Mm -hmm. And usually therapists are not going to judge you if they're not the right fit for you. If you want to move on, you know, that's, that's up to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of them will do phone consultations where you can have your first discussion over the phone and just kind of try to get a sense of, you know, kind of a getting to know you. Mm -hmm. yeah, are we on the same page here? Are we, are we wanting to work in the same way? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely worth a try. You moved cross country from San Francisco a few years back and I would imagine that means not just finding a new doctor, but finding a whole new support system uh, in your new city, Atlanta. Tell us what that was like and how it affected your, your treatment and pretty much your well-being. Sure. I mean, I think that the difficult parts of it, the adjustments and just the kind of leaping off were, were difficult. And then, like you mentioned, when I did get here, I had to reestablish treatment. I had to, you know, kind of find a new therapist, find a new psychiatrist. Um, and um, the first person I found I kind of had a rough experience with, and then I took a break for a while. And so, you know, I mean, kind of doing that whole rebuilding back up your, your structure um, is important. But I also found that the move and all of the changes gave me a huge surge of adrenaline and momentum. Mm -hmm. So those were great things because from that, I was able to take a lot of leaps, littler leaps once I got here, um, you know, kind of using that momentum that was already there. To put a lot of great things in place, I, in times when I'm in worse health, I still have those things and I can still make little actions on those things and I can still look forward to those things. 
um, even if in the moment I'm not feeling engaged with those things or I'm feeling that they're not things that I enjoy right then. But the other thing about the, the momentum and the adrenaline is that once those things died down, I found that my current medication regimen was not working any longer. And so almost right away, with starting a new job and with doing all of these things and trying to get established here, I had to also change medications. Mm. And for anybody who's taken antidepressants before, you know, you might be familiar with that. That can sometimes be a bit of a struggle. There's side effects sometimes when you either get on medications or when you come off of them. And when you come off of them, especially when you've been on something for quite a while, it's usually a really good idea to taper off of them over a long period of time so that you're in a place where you're, you know, limiting the side effects as much as you can. Right. But that also means in some cases that you can't then start a new treatment until, you know, you've gotten off of that tapering process. Um, and so it can be a long adjustment and it can be a long time of not feeling very good mm-hmm. um, and having to kind of hang in there and not quite know what the next thing is going to do. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a bit of a struggle and I've actually had to do that a couple of times since I've been here. And, you know, that's one of the things with treatment resistant depression that that is one of the the more of the drawbacks, I would say, you know, because right. you just can't quite count on finding something that works and then having it work and work for a long time. Mm-hmm. When we say treatment, obviously we're talking about medication and therapy. Uh, but self-care is also important, as you were talking a little bit about earlier. What are some of the things that work for you? I really do find that the things that you can do, like for me, it's meditation, it's eating healthfully, and it's having a sleep schedule. Mm-hmm. Those three things are really important to me. Um, and I do find that those things that work for you as your resources allow can really help you have that better baseline. They can really kind of help you stay at a better place. Um, and every little thing, right? that you can get yourself to do that helps, that you know helps, mm-hmm. is both helping you with the, with that baseline and reinforcing that you are somebody who is worth taking care of, who is worth you know, feeling good, who is worth trying to keep this fight against depression going. Mm-hmm. Um, so in both of those senses, I think it's really important to try and carve out the things that work for you for self-care. So the self-care things that you have in place or that you've identified are those kind of like your medicines in that they'll work sometimes and then they won't? Or is it those are pretty consistent things you can rely on? I think it's that you can rely on them for different things. Mm-hmm. I think if I am in an active depression, um, I can't rely on anything from the self-care column making me feel better. But I can rely on them making me feel like I am trying. And feeling like you're trying is a great thing to combat some of that apathy and that feeling of worthlessness, you know, just feeling that you are investing in yourself a little bit in the little ways that you can. That's another reason why it's really important to kind of try and make them as routine as possible, is if you already have them established, then you can try to turn to them to help yourself feel like you're doing what you can. Um, You know, trying to establish a new routine when you're already completely lacking motivation or when you're, you know, feeling that grayness that's going to be very difficult. So, you know, I would recommend trying to kind of put these things in place, all these tools that you can when you're feeling better as you can. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, you have those to turn to. Certainly. Yeah. Can you tell when you're about to have an active phase of depression, if you will? Um, Are there feelings or behaviors that you've identified that are red flags? Oh, gosh. Um, Yes. And I would say that this is something that I have learned about myself over time and also is just really valuable if you can recognize these things. Mm -hmm. 
for me, I mean, there's the emotions, obviously, but I can't always rely on those being signifiers of a depression. But I can look around me and say, wait a minute, something's off here. If my house is a mess, mm. if I'm eating popcorn for dinner, mm. if I am... Is that bad? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's delicious. Oh, dear. <laughs> Great. Champions. No, if I'm, you know, if I'm obviously like kind of in more of a chaotic state physically than I normally would be, those are definitely signifiers. Mm. If I find that I am turning down invitations to things, if I find that, you know, I am avoiding returning messages to my friends, those are definitely things like, wait a minute, am I doing this because I feel like, you know, I'm too busy or am I doing it because I feel like I'm not worth hanging out with, you know, and, mm. it's, and then it's just kind of recognizing those things for yourself and then questioning, mm-hmm. you know, where Checking in. At. Is there anything about living with depression that you think is positive, things that you maybe wouldn't know about yourself otherwise if you if you didn't have this condition? I think there's a few things. Um, I feel things deeply, which really stinks when that feeling is sadness or anxiety, but it's also really great when that feeling is, you know, satisfaction or joy or interest or any of those. And I think it's really good for empathy and compassion out in the world because you you know, can kind of feel that people might be having these struggles and and anytime empathy and compassion are called for, you can relate to that more, um, which is always, by the way, they're always called for. But, you know, I think if you've been through a serious bout of depression and you can look at the way that you treated yourself with your mind and the things that you were telling yourself, you're, you've told yourself worse things than anybody else can ever tell you. And if you can imagine other people going through that, you know, then, then you can try to give people the benefit of the doubt rather than thinking, oh, they're just lazy or they're just responsible, irresponsible or they're just stuck up. Right. Like, what else could it be? It Could it be that they're, they're too scared to try this thing or they're unable to actually get out of the house so they can't make that commitment? It's not always because people are slacking off or whatever. Right, right. There's always the possibility that something deeper is going on. Definitely. Yeah. True. We have a series uh, at WebMD that we call What Not to Say to Someone Who Has X Condition, be it breast cancer or psoriasis or anything of that sort. Is there anything you'd like to go on the record with as do not ever say this to someone with depression? Well, I think it touches on some of those things that I just was talking about. And I I think it's really like don't tell people to get over it or try harder. You you really have no idea how hard people who have depression have to try. They have to try probably harder than a lot of other people have to try. And that's just to get to that baseline like I've been talking about, you know. It's, It's not a question of trying harder. People with a visible physical disability can't just try harder to do physical things that a person without them would do. And that's the same for people with mental health disabilities. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's just a case of them being a lazy human or an irresponsible human. We're regular people. You've recently started blogging about depression for WebMD, as we've mentioned. And I would think that probably much like coming on this podcast, that's somewhat of a big step for you. Um, Why did you want to make a very personal, private part of your life so public? It was a very big deal. It's It's been very scary, and I, I have, you know, talked to my family and my friends ahead of time about the fact that I was going to do it because they don't even have some of these details mm. in their repertoires about my life. But I think it was worth doing because I think that 
it's really important to address these stereotypes and stigma that we have about people with mental illness. And I think it's important not only because of the way that people with mental illness are treated in, in the everyday world and in everyday interactions, but in the ways that employers look at people with mental illness, in the ways that the treatment system looks at people with mental illness, in the ways that we provide access to care or don't provide access to care, and in the ways that we think about it being something completely exceptional rather than a pretty common part of things that people are struggling with. Uh, I don't think we can help very well if we won't acknowledge that mental illness can be a normal part of normal people's lives. So I think it's really, really important that for those of us who can, who have the resources and the capability of being open about it, to be the ones who can be open about it because a lot of people don't have that luxury. They don't have a safe place where they can be who they are and can talk about who they are. I do, so I think it's really, you know, something that that I should do. Well, it's great for all of us to hear that as well, people who don't live with a condition like that. What is the intersection of work and depression like? Well, I think a little bit of it is putting on a face mm -hmm. um, and then having to do that. But that's also what sick days are for. And I would encourage those who do feel comfortable talking to their employers about this to start helping establish a work culture where mental health illness days are as valid as physical health illness days. If you are in the midst of a depression and can't function in the same way that you can't function if you're in the midst of a flu, that should be a legitimate reason to stay home. Have you seen acceptance for depression change during your lifetime or has it become less stigmatized do you think? I feel like it has and I definitely feel like it gets talked about a lot more now openly mm -hmm. which is which is wonderful um, and I feel like at the very beginning of the podcast we were talking about being a child of the 70s and having the idea of mental health being something that could be screened for and diagnosed and treated being kind of not really a readily available concept. Right. Um, I think that has definitely changed now, and I think that people are much more willing to consider this as something that their children might need help with or that people, you know, in their college atmospheres or younger people might need help with and that it's an acceptable thing to try and look for help with. I think there's still a lot of stigma that individuals deal with when they feel like they need to either be open about that for some reason or just the initial step of going in and seeking treatment. Um, I think it's really hard that first time when you have to try to talk to your doctor and say, hey, you know, I have this scary thing going on and, you know, I don't know what to do and why am I broken? Right. And it's just this, this developing kind of sense that it's okay to, to talk about those things and it's okay to have problems in that way. It's just the same as it would be to have problems with physical parts of your body. We are releasing this podcast on National Depression Screening Day. What would you say to someone out there who thinks they might be depressed, but for whatever reason is putting off having those conversations, doing something about it? Um, I would really encourage you to do yourself the kindness of trying to talk to a, a professional about it, whatever professional you feel comfortable with, or talking to a friend about helping you talk to a professional about it. There's nothing that says you can't have a friend help you call or have a friend write you a note to take to your doctor or have a friend set up your appointment for you if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself. And I also would just like to say there's nothing bad about you for having depression symptoms or depression. It's not your fault. It's not something you're doing wrong. It's not something you're going to go to a doctor and have to, you know, say, 
I need to make all these changes to my health because I gave myself depression. That's not how it works. And things can be so much better if you can get some help learning some new skills, some new ways of thinking, maybe from medication. And you know, I know that medication especially can be scary for people, but if you get help, you can do it very safely and it works for a lot of people. These things that you're feeling can be at least lessened if not fixed. Um, and especially if you're feeling desperate, just please know that you're not alone. I've been there, a lot of other people have been there and we've made it through it and have pretty good lives and you can do it too. Reach out for help if you need it, please. And just, you're really important. There's only one of you. So try to get yourself, you know, help if you can and do the best you can with it. Hallie Cornell, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really learned a lot and really appreciate you sharing your experience with us. You're welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. Hi, this is Hallie Cornell. You just heard me talk with Carrie about living with depression, and I've got a tweak of the week for you, banking praise. I keep a list of kudos that I can look back on when I'm feeling like dirt. While I may not be able to convince myself of my own self-worth when I'm feeling depressed, I can usually believe that the people who said these nice things that I've written down meant them and didn't suddenly transform into liars when my mood changed. This is an example of what I call scaffolding. It's a structure of everyday habits that helps me take care of myself even when I'm down. Banking praise is scaffolding because some days, if I wait until I feel worthy to take something on, I will never begin. This praise list provides proof that I can do good things and do them well. I don't have to be bathing in healthy self-esteem that particular instant to try to tackle another thing. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can tune in next time. Until then, keep up with WebMD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.